Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. What is this awe and reverent fear that the early church was experiencing? It came over them. So it's, it's communicated in the passive tense. They didn't create it, right? So if you know anything about the book of Acts, who probably did it? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, active agent all throughout this book. What is this awe and reverent fear that they experienced? Why should I want to have an awe and reverent fear of God? How can we foster it inside our hearts? If you've got notes, you already knew those three questions were coming. Anybody want sermon notes who did not get them? We can get a bulletin to you right now. Anybody want a bulletin? Okay. So here's what we're going to talk about. The answer to the question, what is this awe and reverent fear the early church experienced it? And Exodus 20, verses 18 through 20, I'm going to turn there again because there's no slides, uh, answers this in the most succinct way that I saw in my studies this week. So go with me, if you would, Exodus 20. If you're familiar, you're going, wait, this is where the Ten Commandments are. Absolutely. And right after the commandments are given, God says something amazing. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to start at verse 18. We're just going to be here briefly. But it helps us go, what kind of fear is going on here? Because I was eight years old when Jurassic Park came out, and I was afraid of the T-Rex. Surely, in the, in the verses where God says he wants us to fear him, surely he doesn't want us to feel about him the way I felt about the T-Rex. There's got to be something else going on here, right? Take a look at verse 18. Right after he gave... These commands. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. Wouldn't you tremble with fear if a mountain was on fire and there's this booming voice and you can't tell what he's saying, but you know it's God? It's a good time to tremble with fear. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. As a pastor, it's really hard to not uh, covet this. Like, oh man, as a church, wouldn't we be so healthy if we had this kind of reverence where we, we wanted a layer between us and God? We felt so much intimacy. And yet, it's a different season with a different covenant. God did come to us with no layers, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he went a step farther. He put his Holy Spirit inside us. So now we've got to really go, what, where's the accountability now to feel a holy and reverent fear? That's where we're going. Don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them. Huh? Didn't it just say they were afraid? And then Moses, because he's a really awesome therapist, he validates their fear. No, he says, do not be afraid. Maybe fear of God is an appropriate response logically, but he tells you not to be afraid of him because right now all you can see is his power. You can't see his love. God's law is given to God's people because he loves us. He is just. But all we can see sometimes in God's laws is his justice. And he's like, no, 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 no. If I was only justice and no love, we wouldn't be having a conversation right now. I would have incinerated you. You guys remember Sodom and Gomorrah? That did not happen to you. So I must be patient and long-suffering and loving, not only just. I am both of these. That's why we're having a conversation and I am giving you my law. 
Why did I save you? Out of Egypt. Except that I love you, and I'm going to exalt the glory of my own name through my chosen people. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you, and so that you, your fear of him will keep you from sinning. Oh, God's into behavior modification. If it'll save your life, yeah. Right? See, for the wages of sin is death, hasn't been written yet. That's still, you know, 1,600 years away. But God knows. Hey, it's your rebellion against me that's killing you. It happened in Genesis 3, it's happening now, it's still going to always be true. The wages of sin is death. If I put a fear, a, a holy reverent awe inside of my people, it's going to help them honor and obey and cherish me the way they ought to. So we see two types of fear in the exact same verse that would be a contradiction if it was only one type of fear. He says, do not be afraid. I'm giving you my law so that you will fear me. You guys see that? Don't be afraid, but fear me. Two different things. We're held back by the English language using the same word in two different moments. I've told you guys for five years, you love your wife and you love hot dogs. That's an English language problem. Okay? Greek, you have no such problems, but in English we have problems. So, God wants us to fear us in the sense of a holy respect, honoring, cherishing, a member of a covenant that does not disclude love at all. You can have a holy reverent fear for somebody that you love. It's not terror that they're against you. This is a God who is for you. And he's saying, you need a holy fear and respect of me. It's not terror, which was appropriate for Egypt, because Egypt rebelled. They decided to be my enemies. So here, here are your blanks. This first answer, this only answer that I'm giving, what is the awe and reverent fear that the early church experienced? They experienced the awe and reverent fear appropriate for God's friends, not the fear appropriate for his enemies. Those are your blanks, friends and enemies. There are two types of types of fear of God. One is totally appropriate if you've decided to stay an enemy of God. God is a big problem if you've decided to be his enemy. But if you've decided by the Holy Spirit's work in your heart to be his friend, does God get any smaller? Does God grow less powerful because you became a Christian? Did God change in any way the day that you became a Christian? So, forgive my incessant C.S. Lewis quotes, but I have to go back to Tumnus talking with Lucy at the beginning of the first book. When she's hearing about Aslan for the first time, and she says, is he a tame lion? And Mr. Tumnus says, no, but he is good. There's something wild and something very strong and very sovereign about the king of the universe. You never get the sense in those books or in those movies that Aslan can be told what to do. <laughs> and yet he loves you enough to go to the stone table for you. There's a holy and reverent fear. I heard somebody a long time ago say, here I wrote it down so I wouldn't mess it up. Biblical fear isn't avoiding the ocean. 
It's a respect for the distance between your toes and the bottom. If you're afraid of the ocean as it relates to terror and the ocean's out to get me, well, you're going to move to Kansas, and good for you. But if you're going to enjoy the ocean, joy is a word that we see all throughout Scripture, and we see it off the lips of the psalmist. The same people who really fear God also get joy from his presence and his goodness and being in relationship with him. If you're going to enjoy the ocean, you're going to go for a two-mile swim because you're awesome like that, and you're planning for a triathlon or something. You just need to have a healthy respect for what this can do. I've heard people talk about uh, a lion that's in a cage at the zoo. There is a fear of when you are in the cage with the lion and you're untrained and the lion is hungry. That's one type of fear. And then there's the fear that gives you the common sense to stay outside of the cage in the first place. That's a different type of fear. I'm not afraid of the lion eating me. I respect this very strong thing, and so I'm staying here. Brothers and sisters, if we respected the king of the universe, we would know what's his territory, and we'd stop playing God. That's what he means when he says, my people will stop. They'll sin less. You guys will sin less if you have a proper, deep-seated sense of my authority and my weight, my beauty, my magnificence. Second question we're addressing today, why should I want to have an awe and reverent fear of God? I'm glad you asked. I just so happened to have a sermon built around that question. So let's do some work. First, because awe and reverent fear are normal for those who are being saved by God. Awe and reverent fear are normal for those who are being saved by God. I'm not going to go to 85.9. It's just so plain English, it's ridiculous. But go to Psalm 85.9 and you'll see, oh, fear of the Lord is for people he saved. It's deeply associated with his salvation. So again, If you're afraid of a shark because you're in the water and there's the shark, right, and there's no barrier between, that type of fear is very different. Uh, It has no place for salvation. That's only your death. So when uh, Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, of a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord, right? He's afraid that he's going to die, and he's not... um, accusing God of doing anything wrong. He's saying, it's actually your holiness and my sinfulness. This is the very just, reasonable thing is for me to, to, to be blasted. I should not be able to survive your presence. And yet God says in, in ways all throughout the Old Testament, like a tabernacle, for example, I want to be with my people in my midst. There have to be barriers, but I'm going to be here. And then he says in the person and work of Jesus Christ, I'm taking those barriers away, right? <laughs> Guys, a good Bible teacher who got on the wrong side of politics and got crucified by Rome, this narrative you get in school, not William Jessup, you guys are good. This narrative makes no sense when the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom as soon as he says it's finished. This has everything to do with the fear of God. We put the Holy Spirit at his own command Behind this thick curtain, God's presence was over there, not to protect God from anything, but to protect us from his holiness. But it is normal 
The, t- the veil's been torn. The Spirit is out, and then just a few weeks after that, the Spirit is given to the church, and He is in us, helping us love and trust God, empowering us toward love and good works. Went to a church planting conference. Two thousand twelve? Doesn't matter. No, it was fall of two thousand eight. Was at a church planting conference in Dallas, Texas. And my wife, who is awesome, snuck money from behind my back. Ladies, pay close attention. This is great marital advice. Just lie to your spouse, sneak money, disregard the budget. It was awesome. So that we are at a dinner with friends about to get on the plane to Dallas for this church planting conference. And she's like, hey, babe, did you know the Cowboys are playing the Niners in Arlington right before the conference starts? Here are two tickets. You guys don't understand. It was awesome. Anyway, I'd never been to a game. Uh, I, I saw them play Oakland in preseason. Who here's been to a preseason NFL game and you know that's not real? That is fake nonsense, third string quarterback. And they charged me 40 bucks a ticket for that nonsense. $12 popcorn. Anyway, I'd never gotten to go to a real game. And Emily's cousins lived out in Dallas at the time and we stayed with them and so, and it's Sunday, of course, so I, I just, good Baptist kid, I'm already feeling just dirty as all, yeah, I feel like a total pagan, that it's 6.30 on a Sunday, there's no way we're going to church, because the game is, I don't know, 10, 10.30 in the morning, and he says, you don't understand, he says, Greg, so you're going to go down, and he tells me what freeway we're going to go down, and he says, you're going to start to see cars pile up on the right, and it won't make any sense, get in line immediately, Look for the traffic and get stuck in traffic immediately. He says, now you're three hours from finding your seat. Oh. And he says, you're two and a half miles from the stadium at that point, but you're in line. That's what's going on right there. It was crazy. It was before the new stadium got It wasn't Texas Stadium. It was, it was the old one. But uh, So the line, like, I didn't know that, had to learn that. That's normal around here. Your church is waiting in line. And then we got to the parking lot, which was its own form of church, tons of people tailgating that had no tickets. They were just going to be there and chill, and they had the radio on, and they were grilling dogs or whatever they were doing. Wow, that's interesting. And then it was really crazy. I'll never forget this sound. Whatever they were doing for pregame or what have you, we're walking up to the stadium and hearing the roar of the crowd from outside of the stadium like we were walking up to the ocean, except we're in North Texas. What is going on here? Did Jesus return? Like, what is going on? The clothing that everybody is wearing that would probably not be totally kosher in the grocery store, but here is considered normal. Every place you could put a blue star, tattoo a blue star on your person, every clothing and the shoes and socks, and like, okay, wow. Let alone getting into the building And I could not help but think, Americans still worship at temples. You couldn't walk through there without seeing how much money was poured into every drop of this. It's like, you got decals on your car, bro. (laughs) And your clothing, and oh, and your season pass holder, and you're spending this amount on food and drink. That's a temple. Everything here I'm seeing is no, and I was a Cowboys fan since I was a kid. I had just never seen this level of worship, awe, reverence, and adoration. 
This is normal here. Brothers and sisters, when you bring a friend to church, they cannot figure out why, there's, uh, why you're getting up so early on Sunday morning. They cannot figure out whether it's clothing or other things. They cannot figure out what the decisions you are making to prepare. Hopefully you're reading, getting some time in scripture, some worship music on in the car, something, Saturday night into Sunday morning to prepare your heart. This is like the highlight of your week. Something big is going on. They sure can't figure out why you close your eyes and sing to nothing. Five songs? Of you didn't ask the band for their autographs. We could do that. It's not a concert. It's something different. And then we sit and we listen to somebody talk out of a very old book and he's got the cojones to say that I have to do what it says because I called myself a Christian, right? Authoritative preaching, no suggestions here, right? He bled and died for you, not me, right? Authoritative Bible teaching. And Christians think all of these things are normal. because for some families they are. A reverent fear of God that we saw in the early church, brothers and sisters, is normal. When we do not fear God, we have taken the first step towards starting a cult. We're going to interpret scripture in whatever way is convenient for us. We will look more and more like the culture instead of standing outside of it prophetically. A lack of fear of God, we're going to sin and sin and sin. And then our friend who's never been to church is going to go, you're no different than me, you hypocrite. And they're going to be right. It all started with, well, that was back then in Acts 2, that whole fear of God thing. It was some weird mystical thing that happened. No, 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 no. The church for 2,000 years, the true church, not people who attend church, but the church invisible, who Christ knows who we are, we have always had some level of the fear of God. And when you come to Jesus, those around you who love Jesus are trying to grow you and disciple you, whether they use these words or they don't, it's indirect. They're trying to help you to have a really healthy reverence for the bigness of God. And it's his bigness that makes me feel small and not small in like a, a crushed, bruised ego, although that might happen, but smallness, man, when, when Gabriel was 18 months old, some of you guys saw it because I did it here in this room. When Gabriel was 18 months old, he loved nothing more than me to toss him way too high in the air, just enough to give mom a heart attack and then catch him. And he would giggle. And I couldn't get that giggle out of him any other way. And it was just too beautiful. It was too, it was too awesome. Anyway, I lost my train of thought. That's all right. Next blank. Why should I want to have an awe and reverent fear of God to become wise? Go to Proverbs 9 with me, just briefly. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. So are we dealing with terror here or respectful awe? Which one? Because if I'm terrified of a tiger, I'm going to run from it, not grow in wisdom, right? <laughs> 
Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. And I wasn't going to include this, but let's, let's see the flow of thought. Wisdom will multiply your days and add years to your life. You'll become wise. Like There's benefit and blessing to gaining wisdom. Wisdom starts when you have a proper respect for the King of Kings. You want to know where real Holy Spirit-born wisdom comes from? You know who God is, so you know who you are. Oh, that's what I was going to say about Gabriel. Gabriel was enjoying being small in that moment. I can't do that with him anymore. He got huge. What are they feeding him? But I felt that way at the side of the Grand Canyon. I was really, really small, and it wasn't a crushing my ego. It was beautiful, and it was awesome. I loved the bigness of God. And I dare say um, the fact that true clearly cut atheism is growing less and less popular in our country. I think it's because, and really in the West, is because people are yearning for the transcendent. I think they're very attracted to the idea of being small and feeling small in response to beauty and majesty and awe. Um, this is why people get into all kinds of religious things uh, which are, let's just say, not helpful. Um, anyway, we gain wisdom and get a longer life from having a proper fear of God. That's a reason to have a proper fear of God. Why else? To align yourself with reality. Romans 1.25. If you don't know it, look it up. Truth is gladly embraced or it is exchanged for a lie. Next answer. Why should I want to have awe and fear of God? Because Jesus died so you could have awe and reverent fear of God. Did you know that? Jesus died. Go to it. Psalm 130. That's real close to Proverbs 9. You should be close by. Psalm 130. Let's look at it real quick. Actually, let's go back one verse to give context. Psalm 130, verse 3. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might Learn to fear you. I thought Jesus died for me because I'm awesome. No. Because I'm a special snowflake. Um, well, okay. But a loving, wise father has a trajectory and a plan for his saving of his church. Who here, this is how chief, cheap grace is defined, who here thinks that Jesus died on a cross to wash away your sins so that you're, you had a blank slate and you could go back and sin some more now that you got your blank slate? Right? It's laughable. If you've, if you've been with Jesus for a while, that's laughable. Like, what are you talking about? Again, if sin's wages are death and our Father loves us, he doesn't want us to sin. He wants us to do what's right for our benefit, not simply for his glory. Do we glorify the Father when we do right? Yup. Do we bless others when we do right? Yep. It's also for our own blessing and benefit. It's not that, uh, well, actually different theological groups would fight over this. I personally don't believe that you're going to go and sin and then all of a sudden Jesus is going to forget that he died for you and wash it all away. But New Testament is very clear that you continue to work out your faith with fear and trembling. You could keep sinning in such a way that you prove you were never a Christian in the first place. You have no heart for God whatsoever, Right? So there, there needs to be a healthy fear that determines behavior, and that behavior gives God glory, blesses others, and it blesses us because better is one day here than a thousand days anywhere else. We either believe that or we don't. Guys, when we're sinning, we don't believe that. Right? Scrolling on my phone, see something I don't like, and I go, no, I would like some time here. This is better than the house of the Lord. Right? Right? 
That's the lie I'm believing in the moment. All right. Because awe and reverent fear keep Christians from sinning. This is like the fourth time I've said it now. That is a reason I should want this. It keeps me from sinning. So we've got just a few minutes left. Practical question. How can we foster awe and reverent fear in our heart. Now, these are going to be super subjective because these are practical steps and these are just my encouragements to you. So take it with a grain of salt. Decide if it's helpful for you in walking with Jesus. Uh, if you do not yet love Jesus Christ, I want you to pay particular attention to these things because when you're trying to figure out Christianity and decide, are these people crazy? First of all, let me help you. The answer is yes. But what type of crazy are they? And here are the specific things that I believe would help us have a right attitude and relationship toward God. First and foremost, whether you are a Christian or not, make sure the cross is marvelous to you. Make sure the cross is marvelous to you. There were a whole tribe of folks in Jesus' time that were masters of the Bible, and yet they had no appreciation, adoration, or desire for God to take on flesh and die for their sins. They thought they were good enough on their own. So when the cross came and went, it was an event in the evening news, not the center point of human history. Don't go pursuing awe and beauty of Jesus bypassing the cross. This is how you end up with Jesus as a really great ethicist or the first feminist or what have you. Uh, yeah, the cross is what makes him the savior of the world. Make up your mind, okay? Consider it. Think about it deeply. Decide if you want it to be true. Look at your own biases. Is it marvelous and is it beautiful or is it grotesque? The New Testament says, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Like if you're on your way to continuing your divorce with God and staying divorced, you're going to look at the cross and you're not going to see any beauty in it. That doesn't take away your free will. You could choose to take a second look at the cross and you could take that second look today. You know that? You're still breathing. That means mercy is still being offered. Forgiveness is still being offered to you by God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Take a second look. Anybody here, you ever saw a painting and you thought it was weird until the person next to you who's an artist freak goes, oh no, you don't understand. And then they explained it to you in detail. This is what the artist was trying to communicate and this is what they did. And this is why. And here's the historical backdrop to when they painted it. And you're going, oh, that actually kind of makes sense. This is the reason art appreciation classes even exist. We are trying right now to take the entire redemptive story of God and put it in front of people when they've never been to an art museum before and expecting them to see it as beautiful the first time. If they see it beautiful the first time, that is because the Holy Spirit of the God, a living God, mercifully made that happen in their heart. But you know what oftentimes happens? There's a careful, beautiful, consistent teaching ministry of a Christian friend hanging out with you answering Bible questions, helping you understand the Christian life, and here's especially who Jesus is. There are questions I've got. I'm not so sure. And you know what? My Christian friend loves me enough to have coffee with me every once in a while. Make sure the cross is marvelous to you. If you can't get awe in the cross, you're going to make excuses for the 10 plagues of Egypt instead of seeing awe. You're going to ask silly questions about how many animals can fit on a boat instead of responding with awe and reverent fear. 
You're going to, I don't know about Sodom and Gomorrah, instead of awe and fear. Next, place God's creation in front of you often. That's a blank. Place God's creation in front of you often. Watch nature shows if you can't get out of the house. It's better than nothing. Watch them in high def, right? Man, I had Jack Hanna back in the late 80s. There was no high def back then. But I will say, I appreciated the photographer's patience. They always made sure that they were going to show when the cheetah did catch the antelope. Because so, that's my little seven-year-old mind. That's what I wanted to see. Get a picture of something that is totally awe-inspiring and save it to your desktop. Get to the ocean and listen to it roar at you. Feel small. And this is easy because we're in Northern California. Go find a tree that is so big you cannot put your arms around it. If, you're, if you are from California, you have no idea how good you have. There are, there are states all across the fruited plain where every tree you could easily put your arms around it. We have no idea the beauty in, uh, in which we live. Place God's creation in front of you often. It is declaring the wonders of God to you. It is reminding you. Third, invite children into wonder as often as possible. You got your niece or nephew with you. You're raising kids right now. You're helping with Foundation Kids. You're helping at a VBS. Invite kids into wonder. It sounds like this. I don't just see a beautiful flower, and I don't say, isn't that flower beautiful? I say to Gabriel, and he is starting to say it on his own, didn't God make that flower so beautiful? One time I made the mistake a few weeks ago of saying, thank you, God, for making that so beautiful, and Gabriel corrected me. Dad, it's thank you, Jesus, for making that flower so beautiful. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so sorry, we'll work on your Trinitarian theology later, because you're five. <laughs> Invite children into wonder. You are teaching them to see the fingerprints of God around them. Last, place God in front of you as often as possible. How many of you guys know a tree is not God? It's California, so I have to ask. The ocean, no matter how much awe it could inspire inside you, the ocean's not God. The mountains are not God. The rivers are not God. So I ask you, please, open the scriptures to yourself Every morning would be my preference. Read it every morning before you go out there and sin left and right and ask, what is amazing about this passage? Is it God's heart? Is, is his heart revealed in this passage and I should get awe and reverence and wonder from his heart? Is his wisdom evident in this passage? He's, always, he's three steps ahead of Nebuchadnezzar. I can see his wisdom. I'm choosing awe in this moment. My God is smart. He is just, he's loving, he's wise, and the future is a place where he is, not just something he knows. I'm going to see his wisdom, and I'm going to find awe and reverence in that. Is it his power? He says, pick up your mat and walk. See, I can see Jesus' heart and his power in the same sentence. And I can choose to have awe in both of those things as I read the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, if you read the scripture and don't ask any questions of it, is there something beautiful that's going to come just by hearing God's voice? Yes. But you've got to engage your brain and ask questions. What is beautiful here that I'm going to find awe and reverence? Back to Northern California. 
You can go to the ocean and not worship. If we're not careful, you can see beautiful trees. You can go to Tahoe and not worship. And that's what's so damnable in Romans 1. We see the creation around us and we start worshiping it instead of the creator who gave it. Lord Jesus, would you please take the Foundation family to a place of greater and greater reverent awe and fear of you? Not because you're gonna zap us, but because you already poured out your wrath on your son on our behalf. Thank you for saving us, God. There's nothing about your friendship that makes you small. You are not a plastic Jesus I can stick in my pocket. I cannot change you. I cannot mold you. I can't change your words. I can't change your ethics. And really only my flesh wants to do that. God, my spirit celebrates every drop of who you are. Oh, Jesus, make worshipers out of us. Help us to wrestle with what awe and fear need to look like at foundation, the same way we saw with our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago in Acts 2. Help us to cherish you and to honor you and frankly, make certain sacrifices that the culture doesn't necessarily expect, might even cause a little bit of conflict. But in our reverent fear, God, may it be really, really clear to friends, families, coworkers, classmates, that we worship a living God. We are not a part of a hobby. We are worshipers. Make it so clear, God, so that we would stand out for the glory of your name. And Lord, we ask that you take us the next six and a half days and make amazing ambassadors out of us in the workplace, in the home, in the classroom, on our street, in our extended family, God, make us ambassadors. In the great name of Jesus Christ, we pray. God's people said. Three things real quick. Number one, um, I am trying, something that got said Thursday with the elders is helping me to realize I've got to be creative and more flexible with certain things. So some of you guys have already seen through uh, email and I've shared, um, we're gonna do a playground refresh on uh, Saturday, October 7th. Here's the deal. When you plan church events, you're trying to find a time that works for the most amount of people to get the largest possible attendance. Um, and Saturday mornings is kind of a default, and yet we've got lots of sports and this, that, and the other. So I thought about it critically, and I go, you know what? The stuff that we're gonna do on the playground to get that freshened up does not actually require everybody to be there at the same time. Does that make sense? We could have a couple of folks come and stain it. We could have some other folks come and pull weeds. We could have some other folks paint those white posts that look awful and we don't even see them anymore because we drive past all the time. The various projects we're working on does not require everyone to be there at the same time. So this is a little bit harder on me and my schedule, but that's okay, we're gonna make it work. I'm going to extend the playground refresh and make it a 48-hour period. So all of Friday the 6th and all of Saturday the 7th, if you and your peeps are able to show up and give an hour, show up and give a couple of hours, by, the, by Sunday morning, we're gonna have a beautiful playground. That's the objective, does that make sense? Uh, so we're going to just kind of informally, I'll make sure we've got the stain and the brushes and all that. Um, I'm gonna find, I need a team leader. Actually, who likes to paint poles white? I'm gonna make you the team leader right now. Who is comfortable going to Lowe's, finding out what kind of white paint needs to go on those poles? Who's gonna make it happen? I need a mover and a shaker. 
I can sit here all day. I knew Mike's hand was going to go up. Shame on all of you. I knew it was going to be Mike. So, <laughs> so Mike is going to handle assembling paint. If you want to paint with Mike, you talk to Mike. If you'd like to stain the playground, talk to me. Weed pulling can happen at any point during those two days. So that is going to be a two-day long extravaganza. See what my little marketing brain just did right there? So that'll be fun. Secondly, um, Thrive Cancer Fighter Support Group starting Wednesday night, October 4. My request of you uh, today, there will be other requests that I make later. My request of you, if you are not on Facebook, you're totally off the hook, okay? If you're on Facebook, please find the event. It's right there on our church page, and I've been sharing it about three times a week. Share that event, okay? Facebook does not put stuff out there unless you pay them money. The way to play the algorithm is share, 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 share. If you just share once, an angel is going to get its wings. I can't prove that biblically, but it might happen. You never know. So please find that group. If you're on Facebook, please share it. We're going to find folks who need support and love in this area. And then last thing is to remind you that October 1, right after service, we're going to dismiss here into a cookout. We're going to have a very good time. There's going to be a watermelon eating contest, a bounce house and playground for the kids. And we're just going to socialize. It is a great Sunday to bring a friend. So I want to encourage you, before you dismiss and run off to beat the Methodist to the Sizzler, to stop for a second and think, who's my one? So easy when pastor says bring a friend to go, oh yeah, that's a nice idea, and not stop and think. If you were going to bring one person to church on October 1, who would it be? See how I just let you twist in the silence there? I gave you, I gave you a second for your brain to think. Awesome. Remember, free food, so you're not asking your friend to bring anything. I love you guys. Go represent Christ in the city and to the ends of the earth.